Coming up today, we explain what really went down when the internet went down and ask a big question. Should you ditch Google Chrome? You're listening to The Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Kawala. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Deliveroo announced it would offer its couriers free training to help them watch out for crimes. None of Deliveroo's couriers are employed by the company and, as a result, don't have access to even the most basic employment rights. One union described Deliveroo's plan for crime-fighting couriers as divisive. This was also the week when a new drug for treating Alzheimer's disease was approved by US regulators. Aducanumab targets the underlying causes of the condition and is the first new treatment for Alzheimer's in 20 years, but it's controversial. Critics argue that its benefits have been overstated. And finally, it was the week when JBS, the world's largest meat processing company, paid $11 million in a Bitcoin payment to hackers who crippled its systems with ransomware. This was a very difficult decision to make for our company and for me personally, the chief executive said. It's been quite a lot of big ransomware attacks recently and, and big ransomware payouts as well. There was the colonial pipeline hack where a ransom was paid and the US Department of Justice actually reclaimed some of the the Bitcoin ransom. But it does feel that more people are paying up. But is that just because there are more high profile ransomware attacks happening? I think that the groups behind a lot of the ransomware attacks that we're seeing at the moment, and there has been an increase in the last year or so, um, are essentially realised that people will pay at the second. Um, and that tends to go against all the advice uh, that is normally given by cybersecurity professionals and experts and companies that say that you shouldn't actually pay the ransom. Um, but it seems like companies are uh, actually uh, more inclined to do so at the moment. And uh, as a result, that has sort of fueled a little bit of uh, this increase in ransomware attacks generally. And we've seen it in hospitals, we've seen it across uh, governments, we've seen it across private companies, all types of different sectors, essentially. And um, ransomware is really sort of having a moment uh, in terms of uh, how widely deployed it is. And I think that the next few months, we're going to see more potential regulations and and things that could look to uh, stem uh, the amount of ransomware attacks that are happening. And it's super interesting that Law, um, law officials and governments are, are going after these payments that are made to try and get them back. So while on the one hand, it's bad to pay a ransom because it potentially encourages more criminal gangs to look into this kind of money making operation. If on the other side, the good guys, if you like, are able to get the money back, then that sort of introduces an interesting new element into proceedings. What did we learn this week? I'll start with you, Natasha. Oh, this week I learned something about something that everyone wears all the time, which is buttons. I learned that men and women's shirts button on opposite sides, which I don't know if everyone else knew, but I certainly didn't. So if you wear women's clothing, the buttons are on the left side of the shirt. However, if you men wear men's shirts, the button lines up on sort of the, the right hand side. I could not find any official reason for why the left and right divide happens. But there are several general theories that are kind of accepted throughout history that as to why this is a thing. So one is that women used to employ servants to dress them. 
and the buttons were put on the left so that servants could dress them properly and with ease. Another theory is about why men's shirts are um, better on the right because they used to carry weapons and buttons on the right-hand side apparently make your shirt easier to undo with the left hand if you're carrying something like a sabre or a cutlass of some sort. So, yeah, why we still have them, though, I have no idea. Well, it's good to it's keep traditions alive. My favourite kind of fact is a hard fact followed by idle speculation. If anyone would like to add to <laughs> the pile of speculation on why shirts button up on different sides, if you're male or female, then do get in touch. Podcast.wired.co.uk. Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Yeah, you nodded along, James, when Natasha said, I don't know if anybody else knows uh, the fact that uh, about the buttons. Um, and I think that this my fact what i learned this week is probably something that other people know but i didn't um so i learned that apple's uh, first logo was an illustration so back in the 1970s when the company was was founded uh it was its logo was a drawing of isaac newton sitting under a tree with an apple about to fall on his head it changed one year after the company was founded in 1977 to the apple symbol symbol with the rainbow colors the original logo was definitely less techy sort of made Apple look a bit like a TV production company. Also, I thought you were going to accuse me of wearing women's shirts. Um, so I'm glad we didn't go down that <laughs> avenue. All right. Uh, our first story this week is about internet outages, Amit. That's right. Yeah, just before 11am on Tuesday morning, people started noticing that huge swathes of the internet seemed to have gone down. They couldn't load web pages of major news organisations, Reddit, Stack Overflow, Twitch, GitHub, PayPal, Shopify, HMRC, eBay gov.uk as well as the guardian wired um and a bunch of other news organizations all went down so this was a kind of widespread internet outage but what was the cause of it natasha well i mean as soon as people started seeing the 503 error message on their screens they started sort of speculating as to what might have caused this outage is sort of start opening all these different tabs nothing worked what was going on so some people were saying that it was a cyber attack which is based on basically nothing at all except for people love a cyber attack. And some people were blaming Amazon Web Services, which hosts a lot of websites, especially news websites, and saying, you know, something must have gone wrong there and that's why things are down. But neither of those theories was true uh, or based in any fact. In fact, the outage lay in an error within an internet infrastructure company called Fastly, which quickly outed itself on Twitter as the source of the problem. Twitter was one of the few sites that didn't go down, which was although it did have some problems with its emojis, but that was quite lucky because huge kind of portions of the news media sort of pivoted to Twitter. So uh, the Guardian's tech reporter Alex Hearn basically started a, a live blog on his Twitter account, uh, which picked up thousands of retweets because it essentially replaced the Guardian tech blog where they would have ordinarily covered the story. The Verge started reporting it in a Google document, but forgot to turn off editing. So what became a you know a google doc with news coverage and it quickly became just a mess of random people messing around on it uh, it turned out that one of the reporters had accidentally tweeted out the edit link rather than the sharing link when when sharing the story but natasha you mentioned this is all down to fastly but what is fastly and I, I guess the question that a lot of people will have is how did this company that they'd never heard of a week ago take down half the internet yeah, this is when you sort of delve into the things that underpin the world as we know it. So Fastly is one of the three biggest internet infrastructure companies in the world, and it provides a content distribution network, which everyone was talking about CDN, um, which supports the way that we can access content around the world. So if you're loading any web page at all, how quickly it appears on your screen depends on how well 
companies like Fastly are working. So if you imagine your internet at home, for example, the closer you are to the router, and I'm very close to mine because I need my internet to go well in this podcast, um, the faster your internet will work. But if you're further away from the router, around a corner in the garden, your internet may be a bit shonky because you're further away. CDNs like what Fastly provides it basically allows you a large scale equivalent of an internet repeater so that everyone around the world can be connected properly to the internet and be able to access just as fast if you're close to the to the root or the source of, of the internet to if you're further away. So in technical terms, CDMs basically use what they call physical infrastructure, which is edge servers, powerful computers that are on the edge of networks where computational data needs to be processed and they're located in countries close to users. So, for example, Fastly will have a list of different servers that are located around the world. You'll see Europe, you'll see Asia, you'll see, you know, places as, as small as, you know, London, Berlin. Are they working? And they all have different servers there that need to be working at all times to provide us with the internet that we need and the internet speed that, that we require. So the day after the outage, Fastly provided more information as to what went wrong and a really helpful timeline of what actually went went down behind the scenes. It all boiled down to a client that used the network introducing some glitchy code into the system. It's quite funny. You always, um, you know, when you're trying to teach your parents or, you know, older people that maybe aren't familiar with computers to, to do stuff. And they're always quite fearful that if they click on the wrong thing, they could end up breaking everything. And I guess people that have grown up with computing are much more willing to just try stuff. And if it doesn't work, they'll try something else. And they know that there's only a really limited number of things that can go wrong. But this is like the nightmare scenario where you type in the wrong thing and literally half the internet goes down. But as you say, Fasty identified the problem quite quickly and, and issued this kind of mea culpa on Twitter, it's something to do with us. So what happened next? How did they fix it? Yeah, so in a statement on its website, Fastly said, you know, on, on May 12th, we introduced a software deployment that allowed a bug that could be triggered by specific customer configuration under specific circumstances. And on June the 8th, when the outage happened, a customer pushed a configuration change that included the specific circumstances that triggered the bug, which caused 85% of its network to return errors. So it was like a confluence of not very good things happening very accidentally and introducing this bug that Fastly was testing into its own system and collapsing itself basically so the the timeline is as follows um that they put a really helpful sort of minute by minute account of everything that that went on so look at 9 47 the initial onset of global disruptions that's when all the servers started going down 9 48 a minute later it's identified by fastly's monitoring software probably quite easily because the bug was fastly's bug in the first place then they they posted something on online at 958 but nobody noticed cuz no one had really you know figured out that their internet was down yet then t- at 10 at 1027 fastly engineering identified which customer had configured the bug into the system accidentally and 10.36, impacted services began to recover. But that's, in fact, the time when we started noticing that web pages weren't loading. So you can see there's sort of a delay between the time that identified, oh, this is what's going on, there's something going on. We think we might be able to fix it. And us saying, wait a second, I'm going on wire.co.uk and I can't load the page. So at, by, by 11, um, the majority of services were recovered. By 12.35, the incident was mitigated. By 12.44, the status post was resolved and by 5.25 in the afternoon, the bug fix deployment started. So 
it's, it's a day of it, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, all in the world, it wasn't like a particularly major problem. The internet was down for, what, about 45 minutes and then kind of slowly got back up again. But it does hint at a wider problem. And the fault that brought down the all the websites that use Farsi highlights one of these big problems with our kind of increasingly interconnected internet. There's three big providers in this CDN space that you talked about. And when one of them goes down, it can have these really big problems. So there's Farsi, Cloudflare... Akamai, Amazon has Amazon CloudFront, but as more and more of the internet becomes uh, coalesced and, and, and organized and, and uh, delivered through these kind of big companies, it's causing a real problem and this problem is only getting worse. Yeah, the thing is our reliance on a very, very small number of companies that underpin the internet is is growing. So if you think back to not so far uh, in the past when cl- the Cloudflare, uh, Cloudflare sorry, outage happened in 2020, it took out sites like Discord, Feedly, Politico, Shopify and League of Legends. But it's like hundreds of, of sites are suddenly down. Um, th- this this kind of thing will not only carry on, experts told us, but also will will get bigger and bigger because more websites and more companies are relying on these three major providers. So the outages are going to get bigger and they're going to affect larger chunks of the internet. So if, if one of these companies fail, the stakes are just going to get higher and higher as time goes on. So what Fastly was telling us was that one client of the thousands it may service could take out a huge chunk of the internet just by making a mistake in coding. And, you know, if we if we continue on that same trajectory, these, la- these large-scale internet issues could be resulting in even bigger future blackouts. So there's a really interesting challenge that, I guess the infrastructure and the companies that run the infrastructure of the internet have to face here because you know 99% of the time CDNs work without a hiccup they deliver billions and billions of pages with no problem whatsoever and you know only when they do go wrong they wake up and realize that there's a problem so there isn't a huge amount of redundancy built into a lot of these systems because it's expensive right you know websites could have had a backup CDN in case Fastly went down but a lot of them don't because it would cost them money and Infrastructure gets concentrated within these companies because it makes your website more resilient in theory, right? If you host your website on Amazon Web Services, it means that if your server goes down, it can quickly be moved to another server that's also run by Amazon. But when the whole thing goes down, you know, you're kind of at the... There's a much bigger problem, right? So, you know, you you might outsource certain things to increase resilience to your website, but then you're putting your trust in these third-party providers, so, yeah, there are definitely ways to avoid it. Websites can host mirrors. They can host mirrors in different regions. They can host mirrors in kind of almost like running their own CDN. So they have, you know, a server in Dublin to serve Western Europe, a server in America to serve American users. You can also stretch hosting and content across multiple different CDNs, as I mentioned. But again, that's expensive. So I guess the question is, what should these companies do? Should they try and be less reliant on third party providers? Should they spend the money or is it just not practical? It's, it's interesting because I think what, what you said about diversifying different CDNs is is kind of the obvious way to go, right? So if, if one uh, point failure happens, you can jump to a different one and, and your service will not be interrupted. But you're, you're 100% right. Companies aren't wanting to spend the money. And it doesn't make sense to, you know, set up your own version of internet infrastructure and stop relying on anyone whatsoever because that costs a massive amount of money. I think that the interesting thing about this is that it was a really good case study in, in what could go wrong and how quickly companies can fix it. So Fastly was able, as you said before, Amit, to get the internet up and running in 45 minutes from a place of pretty much zero information. Um, diversifying the internet 
or getting better at diversifying the types of companies that underpin the internet is really important. There are other companies, not just the three that we've mentioned, that work um, and provide CDNs. Um, but, you know, a lot of companies are gravitating towards those three and you know that there is a problem there where you go okay if, if you have all media organizations major websites you know search engines etc all relying on one provider I mean how much of a big issue is that if if it goes down and the answer is huge right and not only that but you're in the situation where Amazon for example uses Fastly so you might think that Amazon is your internet provider and your internet infrastructure provider sorry and that internet infrastructure provider has its own internet infrastructure provider. So your website might go down and it might not be because of the provider that you've hired to do that job. It might be because they hired another provider and sort of like a house of cards effect takes place. So so this is this is the interesting scenario we find ourselves in right now where you go, OK, it's very difficult to know, even if you do hire another provider, if they're using other people's services. But also, if you don't diversify the internet and we don't think about ways to doing that, to be doing that, um, we're going to find ourselves in a situation where the entire internet could be taken down by one tiny bug in the future, which is crazy. It's crazy. There's an interesting trade-off here between kind of, I guess, convenience and resilience. So, you know, some of the people that we spoke to for this piece, which you can read on the website, pointed out that centralization is generally quite a good thing in a way because bigger CDNs are able to deliver better service. They've got infrastructure in more geographical places and they can, because they're concentrated, they can work on emerging web standards to make people's experiences better. But then that comes with the risk that, you know, every so often, every few years, there will be these kind of wide-scale events that do take down vast swathes of the internet. And actually, maybe that's just something we're going to have to learn to live with just to have the benefit of having these really fast-loading web pages. It's almost like, you know, having a a much faster but slightly less reliable car, you know, which is great 99% of the time, but the, the one day it breaks down, it's a bit of a pain. Yeah, and, and that, that's the kind of trade-off, right? Because we're talking about loading websites, but really the game here is loading multimedia content. So the game is video, and like how qual- how big a quality of video can you achieve? You know, the, the, the just the sheer size and scale of, of producing content is, is getting bigger and bigger each year. And so it is, is very difficult to say, you know, it's a bad idea for all these big companies that are working in this space who are spending so much money on making this better uh, to, to be like, no, you should no longer be allowed to offer in this way because we should all be safeguarding the internet in a sort of mad cap own server scenario but but you know you, you're right you know it, it is is very difficult to to know what what's going to happen if if the scenario is that that we have you know the chicken and egg do we want to have more providers or or do we not and and that's that's i think what happened this week is kind of indicative of the way things are going to move forward in the future because if you look at what happened to Fastly's um, stock price it went up investors responded to how important it is now and investors responded to how quickly uh, the company was able to grab a hold of the situation and and sort of fix it and share prices went up by eight percent and and that that's something that you, you think you know th- these outages are all going to be a bad thing. It's going to be a bad reputational thing. But for Fastly, it was it was quite a boon for a small period of time of of one day. Uh, so so you, you can see sort of the benefit of having such a big provider that is able to you know throw as much engineering capability as necessary at the problem, fix it, and you know still have the advantage of being able to invest a massive amount in making the internet better anyway. Um, after I after that diatribe, I wanted to ask everyone. 
What did you do in the 45 minutes while the internet was down, James? Uh, I had great fun looking at our parent company's internal reporting system and status page updates to work out why the website that I am theoretically in charge of uh, had collapsed um, and wasn't working. Uh, so that was that was kind of fun, seeing how an individual client was trying to see how it could dodge around the problem and get itself back online. As you said, Fastly ended up fixing it so quickly that that wasn't an issue. But you saw other media organizations quickly switching so they could get so that they could get back online. And there was a risk if, if this problem had gone on for some time, that more and more companies would have needed to do that. And then the whole conversation that we were having about backups and network resilience becomes super important because it wasn't, as, as we said right at the top, it wasn't just people's inability to check our website or The Guardian or The Verge or whatever. The UK government website went down and that could be kind of important for a lot of people. Um, yes, so uh, short answer, I sat on the internet trying to work out why most of the internet was offline. Uh, I had about sort of 50 tabs open. None of them worked. So I went to make a cup of tea. That was my my move. I was Very like, British. right, well, it's sort of like snow day, but internet outage day. I feel like it could catch on. Um, I, I did feel 45 minutes was enough to capture my attention, but not feel like it was too onerous. So... That was good. How about you, Amit? What did you do in those 45 minutes? I went on Twitter, as I do in any apocalyptic situation, to see what media commentators <laughs> and people were saying about it. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I don't know what, well, I don't know what I would do if the actual internet went down fully, because there would be no smart comments and no rumours to retweet and share, so I'd be completely lost. Mm-hmm. How about you, Matt Burgess? Uh, I was actually on holiday uh, in the... <laughs> in Cornwall on the coast uh, and most of the holiday I didn't actually have any mobile signal so I wouldn't have noticed if it went down anyway but uh, when the internet did actually go down I was on a cliff where there was a little bit of signal and I saw a BBC push notification come through saying uh, major internet outages uh, in- happening because of problems or something like that and I thought oh I hope that's not a cyber attack because that would be my job and then I forgot about it to be honest. Did you did you feel a sudden urge to run to the nearest laptop and and start trying to get to the bottom of the problem or did you just sort of continue your Poldark-like existence on the cliffs of Cornwall? Uh, I just continued the walk that we were doing and was like, I'm not working. Other people can deal with it if if it is a cyber attack. Good. That is exactly what you should have done. And we're glad it wasn't a cyber attack because I would have missed you terribly. Anyway, there we go. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What did you do for the 45 minutes while the internet was down? And if you want to write to us about network resilience... Go nuts. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week, we're going to take on a pretty tricky question. Should you stop using Google's Chrome browser? Now, earlier this week, we published a story telling people to do just that, and it really struck a chord. It made the front page of Reddit and has been read by over half a million people, which makes it our most read story of the year so far. So what gives? Well, Chrome is immensely popular. If you hadn't noticed, it's got 65% of the global market and is used by 2 billion people on a regular basis. Apple's Safari, its closest competitor, has less than 20% of the market. And as you might expect, Chrome is tightly integrated into Google's data gathering infrastructure, which includes services such as Search and Gmail. And its market dominance gives it a lot of power to help set new standards across the web. Chrome is one of Google's most powerful data gathering tools, And Matt Burgess, you put together three major reasons why you think people might like to ditch it. 
What have you got? Okay, so first up is probably the most obvious one that people might have heard of and have an idea around, and that's data collection. So Google, at the heart of it, is a it, as a company, is an advertising business. It's one of the biggest advertisers uh, and advertising technology providers around uh, and chrome is one of the most powerful ways that google can gather your data chrome can be uh, a gateway to everything that you do online think about uh, everything you browse being collected by google so personal thoughts your feelings your dumb dumb questions medical conditions you enter all of these when uh, you search and if you use chrome you are most likely to uh, be entering these into google search via chrome um, and it can all help to be used to build up google's profile of you and according to apple's ios privacy label which are uh, little uh, snippets of information about what apps, what data each app collects about you. Uh, Chrome can collect data including your location, search and browsing history, user identifiers, uh, product interaction data, so how you're using uh, how you're using Chrome, when you use it, when you the things that you click in there, uh, and use this for its personalization purposes. Which in some parts means the advertising that it serves you. In other ways, it may uh, also be using artificial intelligence or things like that to make various recommendations that are more adapted to you. But essentially, um, the ultimate sort of uh, takeaway from that is that uh, Google Chrome can collect a lot of data. And Google uh, says that it gives you the ability to enable features such as the option to save your book bookmarks and passwords to your Google account and sync your uh, sync your Google account with Chrome. Uh, but unlike other rivals such as Safari and Microsoft's Edge and Firefox, Chrome links this data to devices and individuals. So it builds up a profile and, and uh, uh, essentially lots of information about you. And while it can obviously be argued that Chrome legitimately needs to be handling browsing data, if you're browsing online, then uh, you're going to be having to ent enter this information and it will have to collect it in some way. Uh, it can still siphon off a large amount of this information about your activities and transmit it to Google uh, altogether. Um, and this also applies if you are using uh, Chrome in incognito mode. That doesn't mean that Google or your ISP uh, doesn't collect information about what you're browsing and what you're doing online. It's just not stored locally on your computer. Um, and essentially, um, yeah, this is Chrome is one of the big ways that Google collects data about you and everything that you do online. It's easy to kind of skip over all of that, right, and think, oh, well, it doesn't really have much of an impact and to not understand how creepy some of this data collection is. There was an interesting example recently. Um, I think there was a, a very, very viral Twitter thread about it, if we're going to keep on mentioning that we spend far too much time staring at Twitter, um, where a guy had gone to spend some time with his mum and started noticing that he was being served adverts. And he wasn't really sure why. Like All of a sudden, most of the adverts that he was seeing online had changed. And the reason they changed is because the ad network had worked out he was in proximity to his mother and what she was searching for was being pushed onto him in the hopes that, theoretically, he might help her decide that she should make that purchasing decision. So it's not just everything about you. Just walking up to someone and spending a lot of time with them can mean that your adverts change because there's been a guess, a guess some guesswork has happened on the advertising network side that you might have influence over their purchasing decisions. So this is creepy stuff and it's kind of easy to forget how creepy it is. And Google is the most powerful player here by a mile, right, Matt? And that's that's your second point. 
Yeah, so it's all about um, really sort of some of the infrastructure control, uh, going back to sort of the first story that we're talking about uh, this week that sort of Google has. Um, and while Google's data data collection has been known about for a long time, even though people may not have understood the full extent and the creepiness that uh, some of this can happen, um, there's also this element of power that Google has. Uh, and one of the experts we were talking to with this story, who was a former GCHQ uh, cybersecurity consultant, said that essentially when you are a company such as Google that has the majority share of browsers through Chrome and internet search through Google search, obviously, uh, you have a huge amount of power. Um, web developers and SEO experts all around the web and, and online are essentially trying to please Google a lot of the time with what they do. Um, people want to optimize their uh, website so it will appear through uh, here at the top of Google search results so they'll get more users and, and more um more people clicking on it. Um, and essentially, uh, within Chrome, there are um, sort of it's a platform that people develop for and a browser that people develop for. So uh, if your favorite uh, website or games or anything doesn't work with Chrome, people are less likely to sort of switch to an alternative um, when they could be seeing something that doesn't have exactly the same amount of functionality. So Google is essentially at the the center of this uh browser market and it has a lot of power over what people do online and how the web is developed and every time google pushes out a major algorithm update so changes the way its search engine operates websites around the world run into a, a bit of a blind panic and try and work out what the implications of that update are going to be on their business and for some websites it can be sounds a bit dramatic but life and death you can go from having a very very robust and secure business where you're ranking for all the terms that you need to rank for in Google. And then overnight, Google pushes out an update and you go from number one to off the first page, which is basically nowhere. And it's similar for browser compliance, right? It sounds boring, but it's important. If you're somebody who's not been using Chrome for a long time, you will know only too well that there are a bunch of websites that don't work in some, certainly some of the more obscure browsers. That's becoming less and less the case, but Chrome's market dominance has ensured that the internet has been written in its image, just as the websites that exist on the internet pander to Google search algorithm. And that gets us to your third point, Matt, which is all about web standards. Yeah, the the completely sexy subject of web standards. Um, uh, but it is an important one. Um, because of Google's massive market share, it has allowed uh, the company to develop web standards such as AMP, which is accelerated mobile pages. So if you're, if you're doing a Google search on your phone, the top results will be um, websites that are uh, have been optimized for mobile, essentially. Uh, and Google shows these uh, results uh, at the top because um, the the pages actually they load faster they may may involve uh, less data um, but Google introduced this as a format and essentially if you're a website that doesn't use AMP then your results will show up lower down in in search results um, and it's got that power to say actually this is the way that the system works and then um, it led to a lot of publishers and a lot of media outlets having to change their systems and their websites and build new things that are compatible with uh, Chrome and AMP through search um, and these uh, it's 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 an important point because essentially it is about the power that Google has over standards and dominating these conversations. And a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, Chrome development of Flock, which is, is 
its cookie replacement technology for when uh, Chrome gets rid of uh, third-party cookies next year. Um, and essentially, this is part of that bigger discussion about standards. So Google is changing something with uh, Flock and cookies that will impact uh, thousands of businesses, millions of people working working in marketing and advertising. Um, and this process that Google's doing around that is a lot more open than other processes but essentially people say that Google pretty much calls the shots at the end of the day around this um and really that's sort of like uh sort of leaning towards questions around sort of like how we want uh the, in the internet's infrastructure to really work like Obviously, not a lot of people spend much time thinking about the browser that you're using. It's not a very fun or interesting subject to to think about, but it is something that pretty much well everybody uses when they go online. And at the moment, a lot of that um, use is through is through Chrome, and and that is the central point, and that is the way that people get online. I think we all need to start finding web standards completely sexy because it is super important, right? But let's talk alternatives okay so there's a big reason that the majority of people in the world use chrome one google's got a marketing budget like you wouldn't believe and two and this is a really important point it tends to build really really good products that people find convenient and what google's really good at doing and this is the same for apple when, apple when we're talking about ecosystems is if you use one google service it becomes more convenient to use another and then another and then another and before you know it your entire life is playing out on google so even if you're someone who feels that way that you are a 100% signed up google fan what alternatives are there and what can people do to change their relationship with google yeah, so there are a few things that you can do within uh, sort of Chrome and Chrome itself. So uh, you can prevent your uh, browsing data uh, being collected by not syncing to Chrome. So uh, you can unlink your Google account with your Chrome uh, account. So in Chrome, there's a if you're logged in with Google, there'll be a little picture of your face or an icon in the top right hand corner. And you can uh, either pause the sharing there or unlink stuff altogether. So uh, data isn't shared across that way. So there's a little bit less data going into Google. Uh, and uh, there's also the ability to turn off third party cookie tracking, which is something that, as we mentioned, will change in the future anyway, but that can be done already. Um, and over the years, sort of Google has improved the uh, tools uh, and, and parts of its service that let you um, stop data being collected or control the way that data is being collected. They're still, to be honest, quite confusing in some ways, but there are things that you can do to limit stuff within within Google. And I think that that's something we're going to see the company be a lot more keen to uh, talk about going forward in terms of like what it's doing to help try and limit user data collection but there are alternatives out there obviously uh, so there are a bunch of other browsers that are more privacy friendly and don't have but don't have the same uh, market clout as chrome uh, so alternative alternatives include DuckDuckGo on some platforms brave firefox tor if you want to uh, go for the extreme uh, privacy but will uh, routing everything through the tor system will mean that your browsing is a bit slower um, and also some of these uh, alternatives include browser plugins that you can use within chrome that stop it from tracking you across the web in some ways um, and for me it really all comes back to this idea of uh, you're getting a product or service for free so there's probably some trade-off that's being made with google that is very much about your data um, but i think recently uh, as people have 
thought a lot more about sort of the data that's collected about them online uh it's really sort of bringing into question some of the company's uh business models and and how uh everything online has previously been provided for free but in the future people might be more willing to consider paying for the services that they are using it's kind of wild to imagine that in an alternative timeline we might have built an internet where people pay for the services that they use. I mean, it would be ridiculous to think that I should walk into a supermarket, just grab a bunch of stuff off the shelves and walk out without paying for it. I mean, you kind of have that with loyalty card schemes where you can get fairly big discounts on your groceries. But in terms of Google, the vast majority of people aren't paying the company a penny. So what you're saying is maybe we need to get used to paying for services online with money rather than with data. Yeah, I think that that is the way that a lot of uh, companies are going to move going forward. And we've already seen sort of new companies in this space, uh, maybe not so much browsers, but other services where data collection is very heavy. Um, for instance, ProtonMail, which is an encrypted email services and uh, will make sure where possible emails are end-to-end encrypted, has a free tier, but to really get any sort of like serious use out of it, you need to pay and people do pay to use this. Uh, there's also in the sort of search space, there's a company called Neva, which is pretty new and was created by a uh, former Google executive uh, that makes its money from a subscription fee. At the moment, it's sort of in a, a beta phase and it says that uh, it's about $5 a month for uh, f- for all your searches to be paid for uh, and in return it promises to serve you no ads or no affiliate fees or no uh, sort of like other applications or services that it's previewed producing that will also collect data Um, and essentially these types of businesses will I think it'll be probably harder for them to survive in some cases because you have to convince people to pay for it but increasingly we are seeing people being more privacy conscious and focused and I think that that is an area that seems to be something that a lot of companies want to push in terms of like why you should use their products or their services because actually they're not collecting as much data uh, as as rivals and they're not uh, using that data to uh, create profiles about you to to serve you adverts that might be creepy or to really sort of do anything that could infringe on your privacy. And this is all part of a much bigger story, right? So Apple and Facebook are currently at loggerheads over data privacy with Apple increasingly using its greater focus on user privacy as a major selling point for its hardware and software. Pretty much every time Apple opens its big corporate gob, it's talking about how it protects your privacy and with more than a nod and a wink, maybe Facebook doesn't. So Facebook, on the other hand, really wants you to keep using its products and services which are free. And this is a showdown that's likely to have pretty major implications for how we all use technology in the future. On the one side, you're the product and everything is free, which is kind of what we're used to. And on the other, you pay up front to ensure that your personal data isn't gobbled up and spread all over the place. The last decade or so has really sort of taught us about uh, the business models of Facebook and Google. And I think over time, there has been this realization that uh, actually uh, what you're giving up your data by using some of these companies um, and essentially uh, they are making money based off of your interests and things like that. And in the last uh, probably probably five to 10 years, really, we've seen a lot more people become aware of how uh, some of the big foundational internet companies um, make their money. Um, we've, we've seen from Snowden and the leaks that he uh, provided from the NSA and from sort of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and new legislation such as uh, GDPR and California's Privacy Act that actually um, 
there is people care about their privacy um they just maybe haven't understood how these companies worked in the past and as you alluded there james uh, apple has been very much been setting itself out as a, a company that cares about your privacy uh, and it's been setting its position as a privacy focused business for quite a few years now actually um so safari and like chrome doesn't track you as much its map products don't feed your specific location back back to Apple, as uh, as is the case with some of the Google services. Um, and there's obviously a reason why Apple is doing this. It's, it's mostly focused on hardware, um, although it is increasingly going into services such as Apple TV and Apple Arcade, and uh, it's expanded its music proposition and stuff as well. Uh, but really, it's it's really exists to sell phones and uh, tablets and computers. Uh, so its business model is very different to Google and to Facebook, which means that it doesn't have to rely on user data as much. And most recently, Recently, as you as you mentioned, uh, James, iOS 14.5 uh, launched across uh, Apple's products and uh, included cross app tracking blocking. So people now have to opt in to be tracked across apps for advertising purposes. And it's something that potentially has the ability to damage Facebook's business model quite a bit. So according to sort of like early data from a company called Flurry Analytics a few weeks ago, when this tool, uh, when this option to opt into uh, advertising tracking was introduced the first time, 85% of worldwide users clicked uh, not to be tracked across apps uh, when when they were prompted to do so. And in the US, uh, that rose to 94%. So I think that this really shows that people do actually care about privacy and their data and how it's used. But I think until now, there has been a lot of confusion uh, that people haven't really acted upon this. So I think that, that sort of gets us back to the, the question that we were thinking about at the beginning uh, and the, the article that prompted this discussion is, should you ditch Chrome? And I think that there are many reasons why people may want to going forward. Um, it may not be something that people think about a lot, but actually uh, when you consider all these different areas that Chrome has and the, the dominance that Google has, despite providing some of the best services, it does show that yeah actually some of these companies are very powerful and control uh large parts of what we do online every single day it's a to go back to the supermarket thing a good con that big big supermarkets have pulled is that they're more convenient and they're cheaper that's regularly been shown to not be the case right there's a good chance that your local butcher or bakers or fishmongers is actually cheaper than a supermarket but the supermarket has made it feel like it's better value and it's more convenient and the, the damage down the supply chain of kind of the race to the bottom in terms of prices has been quite profound and there's a degree of that going on here that it might seem like google makes all the best products and services but there are lots of really good alternatives out there you've just got to do a little bit more work to detach yourself from Google's ecosystem and go and find one that works better for you, both in terms of functionality and privacy. And Matt, you're a good case study because you've done exactly this. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm something my job is mostly about writing about privacy and online tracking and, and advertising and all these types of things. Uh, so I'm probably sort of like a bit of an outlier. But uh, yeah, my setup uh, is, has increasingly over the last couple of years uh, been about using less Google and, and to be honest, less Facebook products as well. Uh, so my current setup uh, is uh, using Brave browser on the desktop and on mobile, uh, although I have used 
DuckDuckGo in the past for, for some things. Uh, and on mobile, I'm sort of using um, a company called StartPage which, uh, for search, which actually provides Google's results, but uh, does so without tracking. And it's one of a company that's been around for a very long time, essentially, uh, but has moved more to privacy-related things uh, more recently. Um, and sort of more broadly, yeah, no social media apps on my phone. I don't, uh, Instagram is the only one that I have, but no Facebook, no Twitter, anything like that at all is, is gone. And if I want to use it, I have to um, log into them through uh, through the browser, which makes it a little bit less uh, compulsive to sort of click and scroll through stuff. Well done you. Natasha's shaking her head in disbelief. Natasha, are you uh, stuck well and truly in Google's ecosystem still? I'm always kind of in awe of Matt Burgess's capability of shutting down everything. He's got inbox zero, WhatsApp zero, browser zero, it sounds like. It's just, it's very impressive. I I feel like I've gone down sort of slippery slope because I use my uh, work computer for everything now since the pandemic. So it used to be that I'd have a computer at work and a computer at home. The computer at home would have Firefox and the computer at work would use Chrome because we use um, Google Docs to file stories and things like that. And so it's sort of been a a slippery slope where now I've started using Chrome for pretty much everything because Firefox will not install on this computer. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of the opposite of, of Matt Burgess in that I've got 700 million tabs open, have given access to Google to do whatever is needed. Um, it's got to the point where Amazon's always logged in. So I could, like today I bought a padlock and it's arriving this afternoon. <laughs> I just clicked one thing. I just, I typed in padlock and I clicked buy. This is how much data they have on me now. It's it's perhaps a bit worrisome and I will rectify it once um, once I'm on a two computer system again. But we it's, can't it's all hard, be like right? Matt Burgess. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> what about you, Amit? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm much more setup? like Natasha than I am about than Matt Burgess. Like, yeah, I don't know. For me, it's about friction and, and you know, Google's just easy and they make everything so easy. You know, I, I can sync stuff across different devices. Like if I read an article six months ago and I need to find it, you know, I can, I can search for it, which, you know, if you're researching stories or, you know, longer things, it's quite useful to have that functionality, even though it's deeply worrying that all that stuff I search for is in there. But yeah, I use Chrome on my computer and Safari on my phone. But like Matt, I don't have any social media apps on my phone and I don't have the ability to log into them on my phone either. So uh, to everyone's great amusement, if I want to go on Twitter or Facebook, I have to get an iPad out of the drawer and uh, log into it through there because the passwords are saved on there and there only. But again, that's not really a privacy thing. It's more of a attention thing and, and kind of trying to, trying to actually artificially create friction for things like going on social media or Facebook and mindlessly scrolling. And sometimes that friction can be good, right? So I use Firefox on my phone and DuckDuckGo as a search engine. And, and particularly with that latter point, I found that because DuckDuckGo, it isn't as good as Google, particularly for local results. It's it's fine for general questions like who was in this movie or um, how tall is Rishi Sunak. But if you, if you want to go for something more local, then, then Google has that data and is, is better at serving that kind of content. But it, it means that you use your phone less because it's kind of less good, um, which might be a bit of a weird way of thinking about it but you you just pick it up less because you realize that it's not actually that important to have the entire world's knowledge at your fingertips all the time i think particularly during the pandemic when i've been stuck in the same house for pretty much a year more than um it's, it's quite nice to try as much as possible to detach yourself from the matrix um and google makes it so easy 
to always be in its ecosystem of products that just for your own sanity, it can be quite good to establish a little bit of distance. And if that means introducing friction, that's quite useful. Yeah, I think that the friction point is a really good one because like a lot of the services and things that Google provides are very good and they are um, they make life a lot easier. I think the biggest thing that I've missed from sort of moving away from Chrome uh, over the last year or so is the uh, is the Google Pay function. So literally, if you're logged in Chrome, you can click one thing on thousands of websites to buy uh, and then using and not using Chrome elsewhere means that I have to enter my bank details every time I go on a website and it's like, oh, I sort of sigh about it every single, every single time. I do it but sort of make myself t- take that extra little step well, that's I an interesting point back. does does that mean that you buy less things because it's harder to buy things do you think Pro- probably not I've actually found myself using PayPal more which uh, I guess ah. <laughs> means that there's uh, other levels of data collection and services and things going on there but I guess the point is that it isn't through one company that is that owns everything Okay, when uh, when we next visit this story, I expect you to no longer be using PayPal and have found some alternative that ensures that you are completely out of the industrial advertising complex. Thanks very much, Matt Burgess. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Are you using Chrome? Have you found an alternative to Chrome? Are you trying to detach yourself from the Facebook and Google ecosystems? Is Apple on the right side of this argument when it says, hey, come and spend thousands of pounds on our wonderful products and will protect your privacy podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week or if you're going back through the archive any other week as well time for a couple of your emails now amit you've got one about astrology i have two about astrology actually we have two emails this week about the astrology story we did a couple of weeks ago carol write in from estonia about the proliferation of facebook groups they say there's been a huge explosion of groups about astrology channeling tarot cards all being promoted as if they have healing properties they think that these groups should have a disclaimer saying something like you know this site is for entertainment purposes only should not be taken as real medical advice which i think you know something actually is a really really good idea and something that we i definitely agree with that uh, Robbie also wrote in about the same story. He says that back in the early 2000s, his dad worked for a telecoms company that supplied people with daily horoscopes via text message for a small fee. They launched the service and it had been running for two years before they found a bug in the software which was causing the wrong horoscope descriptions to be sent to all star signs. He says that not a single user ever noticed the bug, proving once and for all that horoscopes are, in his words, all a bunch of generic codswallop. Very good. Thank you very much for getting in touch. And Matt, there's one more email that you're going to take on. Yeah, the um, we had an email from Oren about um, the story that we talked about a few weeks ago about indigenous speech recognition technology, which was uh, being created by uh, Maori groups in uh, New Zealand. And they wrote in to say that they uh, are originally from New Zealand and um, are living in London at the moment and have been doing so for the past three years and that they uh, love the podcast and that it's become part of their weekly routine and has helped immensely during lockdown, which is very good to hear. Um, and they say on the story that they think the protection of language is very important for Indigenous cultures um, and and highlight that recently there have been a few examples uh, of uh, Maori culture being sort of either uh, misappropriated or sort of like uh, or represented in the wrong way. And one example of that was Far Cry Free, the game, um, and they they highlight that actually this is 
why uh, the questions that we were talking around around data and, and collection and money and uh, all of the sort of use of this technology is actually important in the in the wider context. Um, and the only thing that they wanted to point out as well is that the uh, pronunciation pronunciation of uh, Maori is uh, more like Maori rather than Maori, which is I think the way that I've been pronouncing it even now, uh, even though I've been watching uh, videos and trying to sort of uh, learn the correct way to say it. So uh, yeah, thank you for flagging that up. Thanks so much for getting in touch. And thanks to everyone that emailed in this week, podcast.wired.co.uk. If you want to get in touch with the show, we really do love getting your emails. That's it for this week. We'll be back again, same time next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.